Let's pray together. Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would bless our time. Father, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Father, revive us. Enlighten our hearts and give us understanding. May we seek you through your word. Make our way steadfast and true according to your word. Fill us with joy and peace and understanding that only comes from you. Father, I pray that as we establish Redeemer Church, that it will be built on the solid foundation of your word. Father, all that we know about you, we know about your Son, is given to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. Father, may every ministry be ultimately about Christ according to your word. Father, may we establish it truly and rightly and only to your glory. Father, I pray that as we disciple children, that they will know and grow in knowledge of you. Father, the adult discipleship, that we will hunger and thirst for righteousness. Father, as we reach out to the community, that we will lay aside everything that hampers us, that we will be emboldened by your Spirit to preach the gospel, to share it with our neighbors. Father, help us to see them in the way that you see them, Father. Father, I pray for our families. I pray for the marriages here at Redeemer. May each marriage represent the gospel. Father, may husbands love their wives sacrificially. May wives follow their husbands as the church follows and submits to Christ. Father, we do pray for our neighbors. Over 16,000 who don't see the value of worshiping you, Father, here. Father, may we play a small role in you bringing more into your kingdom. Father, bless this church. Bless it with your spirit and the righteousness that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for other churches here in King George County. Father, I pray that each church will preach the gospel as it's intended according to your word that the pastors, the preachers will be faithful to your word, that those who hear will have ears to hear and hearts to love, minds to understand, and Father, may they respond to the gospel. Father, as you do your work here in King George and in our state and in our country, Father, we think of over 12 million people in India, the Kohli people. Father, most believe in that false religion of Hinduism. Father, break them of that chain. Father, may they come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, multiply the efforts that are already among the holy people. Father, use the Bible that's been translated in their own language, Father. May they hear truth in their own language. Father, we also lift up Darren Carlson, the president of Training Leaders International. He and his family are in Greece serving the, the refugees there in Greece. And he's researching to understand it better. Father, I pray that you will give him the strength to complete his research, the love and the, the boldness to go forth and to continue to minister even while it's hard and difficult. Father, so many are receiving false baptisms, false certificates of baptisms just to be ushered into the country. Father, I pray that you'll break that cycle. That you will bring true followers into the kingdom, Father.
Father, right back in our own neighborhood, we lift up Bobby Oliveri of Foundation Church of Fredericksburg. Father, I pray that you will strengthen that body. I pray that you will give them the new facility that they're seeking, Father, within their budget. Father, I pray that you will embolden Pastor Bobby to preach the gospel faithfully. I pray for unity in that body as well. Lord, we also lift up his wife, Brittany, and their two children, Tinley and Shepherd. Father, strengthen them, encourage them. Father, no matter what opposition they face, may they continue to minister for your great name. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. In his counseling book called Seeing with New Eyes by David Powelson, he gives us a good description of the Christian life in his introduction. I'm going to read it for you. He quotes C.S. Lewis in the very beginning, and he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And then David Powelson goes on to say this, By it I see everything else, this risen and rising sun, light of the world no less. Open our eyes to see. We come to see a man we've never actually laid eyes on. In fact, we not only see him, but we love him, trust him, and delight in him. Along the way, he teaches us to see everything else the world contains. We aren't talking about retinal images processed in the brain. This seeing, this gaze, means to wake us up from our fantasies, fictions, and nightmares to see things as they really are, in fact. God has the real take on things, and God teaches us his gaze. We learn slowly in fits and starts to see how God sees. God, self, others, problems, circumstances all now appear in their true mirror. Learning the gaze of God, we come to weigh life all right. We discern good and evil, fair and foul, lovely and degraded. Our Father enlightens the eyes of our hearts. We become able to pry apart true from false instead of living in a murk and half-truths and flat lies. All sorts of things start to look and to mean different when the light comes on. Friendship, artistic abilities, Orion's belt, brilliant on a winter night, bone cancer, a frustrating job search, money in the bank, the waste of our wrath and sorrows, forgiveness sought and granted, old hurts and fresh affronts, kind hearts and opportunities not to be missed, anorexia, bulimia, quiet desperation and joy inexpressible full of glory. Daytimer or palm pilot, the sounds and smells of tonight's dinner sizzling in the pan. The sins and sufferings of the human condition, the stuff that he's talking about here, look different. David Powelson's introduction is a good description of what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4. Paul wants us to see how God sees things, to know truth and to look at life differently, that through Christ you see everything else as it rightly is. I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, and I'll be 
reading in verse 1. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. As you turn with me, I want us to see how we are to live in light of knowing the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Sentesi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. May God open our eyes to His truth, to His word tonight. May we see the protection in God's word this evening. May we see that this word ultimately points to a person who is our shield and our refuge. In our passage, Paul gives five exhortations or instructions in the closing chapter here in the book of Philippians. These five commands are outcomes of Paul's writing in the letter. The first one, stand firm in the mind of Christ. It's the capstone of Paul's thoughts all throughout the book. He says, especially when you disagree with one another. Number two, rejoice in the Lord. The third one, be gentle and reasonable to everyone. The fourth, do not be anxious, but pray. And the fifth, think and practice praiseworthy things. Paul has stressed joy that is found in Christ. The immeasurable joy that comes in knowing that Christ died for his people to make them free in Christ. The joy of knowing God as Savior and Lord. Seeing Christ as the one who humbled himself by dying on a cross, paying the penalty for sin for his people, and conquering death so that his people will live with him for all eternity. This joy has its climax in tonight's passage, in verse 4, where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. There is joy in Christ unlike any happiness found in this life. It's a joy that will increase forever for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Those who are with Christ in eternity, always learning about Christ and worshiping Him. And it goes on forever and ever. This rejoicing will increase forever. Last week we looked at reasons why Paul tells us of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. I gave you 12 glorious reasons why Paul tells us that culminate, that come together in joy in Jesus Christ. I described it as them all coming together like nuclear energy in in a person that explodes in praise and worship to God. The life of the believer is focused on Christ, admiring Him and finding joy in Him alone. It's a focus and admiration and a joy that comes from Christ, that loves Christ both completely and supremely. Not just in comparison to other things, but it is totally and it's supremely. Where we say with Paul that compared to Christ, everything else is as if it's trash. Everything else is loss. And Christ is gain. It's full devotion. It's a life full of devotion to Christ. Paul described this praiseworthy life back in chapter 1 as worthy of the gospel of Christ. In chapter 2, as having the same mind, the same love of one mind and attitude as Christ. Christ who humbled himself for the sake of others. Paul then burst out in the great Christ hymn there in chapter 2, praising God for who Jesus is. Because of this, because of who Jesus is, because of those 12 glorious reasons that culminate together, that set Christ higher than anything, Paul gives his first exhortation. It begins in chapter 4 with, Therefore, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The word therefore says, because of everything I've said, because of the immense joy in Christ, because of these 12 glorious reasons that Jesus died and who he is, because of this, stand firm in the Lord. Before Paul challenges his church, this church, to stand firm, notice how he addresses them. He reminds them of his deep affection for them. He says, my brothers, whom I love and whom I long for, my joy and my crown, my beloved, he says. Oh, that I pray that Redeemer Church sees each other this way. That we see fellow members with this godly love, a deep love for Christ, resulting in a sincere love for one another. It's a genuine love. It's a love typically seen in a family. Paul says, my brothers. It's a family relation. Christian community is bonded together in mutual kinship. Those in Christ have been adopted as children of God through the work of Christ. We're part of one family. We share the same love from God We are all valued as brothers and sisters. There's no one higher. There's no one lower. No one in God's family is left out. 
We're all valued children of God. It's an eternal relationship that's built on the eternal love of God. Paul loves this church and he longs for them. He's separated by distance and he misses the mutual love they express to him. He's separated by distance, yet it's a love that looks forward to being together. It's a fellowship grounded in Christ where he is our mutual joy and aim. Brothers and sisters in Christ, loving Christ, having the same aspirations for Christ and living in his name. It's a unified mission where love for Christ bonds us together in sharing the gospel, sharing it with those who are lost in darkness. Paul then describes this church as my joy and crown. Paul's joy comes from the Lord and and the community with his brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's joy is relational, not situational. It's a joy that does not have any time constraints or parameters or conditions, and it's not circumstantial. It can't be shaken or taken away. Remember where Paul's at. He's in prison and he's saying this. What a tender, sweet love this is. That's a love we need here at Redeemer Church. Paul tells the Philippians that he's already has victory, even in prison. They are his crown. That gives us a, a mental picture of it's a sign of victory in Paul's day. They are his crown. Paul's already celebrating the love of Christ that he has with his brothers and sisters. No matter our circumstances, no matter the opposition, no matter the results of our labor, God has put us into a family of God, and that is reason to celebrate. And Paul says, my brothers, my joy and crown. We are his children in a family full of brothers and sisters for all eternity. This is how fellow Christians can share a love even if they've never met before. It's not the outer appearance or the similar backgrounds that we have in common. It's the same love given by God to fellow believers. And it's shared together. Some translations in verse 1 with dear friends. Others say my beloved Both are terms of deep Christian love. As the family of God, Paul says, stand firm. Now this is not a family reunion that Paul is talking about when he's longing for them. It's not a family reunion that we experience in this life with our brothers and sisters. We get to experience that when Christ returns. There will be an eternal celebration of God's family when we feast at the king's table. What we need to see is Paul's context for this command to stand firm. Paul reminds the Philippians of his love for them first and their mutual kinship in Christ. Then he tells them to be unmovable, to stand firm. Remember our citizenship of heaven, living in a manner worthy of Christ, As we face opposition, Paul says. Described as enemies of the cross in chapter 3. 
We are to be in one spirit, striving together, being of the same mind in the Lord. Our commitment to Christ causes opposition and suffering. We need to stand firm when the attacks come. We need to stand firm as a family. The world does not honor Christ. It does not treasure Christ. And it will wear us down individually. It will be a barrage that seems to go on and on and on. The opposition seems not to stop. We can't stand firm if we're divided. To stand firm means we lock arms. We have the same heart, the same goal, the same passion for Christ and His gospel. We do this by having Christ as Lord of our lives. We show His Lordship over our lives. By following Christ in face of opposition, by suffering for His sake, by walking together for the sake of the gospel. Paul then gets to a specific concern in the Philippian church body, the relational conflict between Yodia and Syntyche. Paul is not entreating them to agree on some issue. He's imploring them. He's seriously urging them to have the mind of Christ in their dispute. Yodia and Syntyche had some type of disagreement that's not described here. Paul is not telling them to come to a single point of agreement. He says to agree in the Lord. This is the same language that Paul used in chapter 2, verse 2. Being of the same mind, having the same love, having in full accord and of one mind, which comes from the Spirit of God and being in Christ. Yodia and Syntyche were to remember their eternal bond in Christ. If they began to think this way, in the way that Paul thinks, Timothy and Epaphroditus, in how they follow the attitude of Christ, then their differences would either be dissolved, they would go away, or they wouldn't matter that much. Both Yodia and Syntyche would remember their purpose on earth. Why does God have them here on this earth? They would strive together arm in arm for the greatest cause on earth and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would work together and unity would be maintained in the church. This is what Paul reminded them in the rest of verse 3. Please look with me. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul is reminding them of that eternal perspective that we are to have in the family of God. When there's opposition, when there's disagreements among us, we have something in common and that's Christ and the purpose that he's given us to share the gospel for his glory. Next is Paul's second exhortation to the church in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I pray that you see this commandment as an encouragement and not as a condemnation. 
I pray that you see verse 4, to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice as an encouragement tonight. Paul does not say here to rejoice only in the good times. Paul does not say to rejoice when we feel like it. Paul does not say to rejoice when others are looking. Paul doesn't say to fake it. So how is this encouragement to me? How does this encourage our church? How does this help me? Paul's not telling us to fake it. There are times when I am seriously sinking low, even knowing Christ. There are times when I'm truly bothered and burdened with life. There are times when I'm frustrated and I'm distraught. Paul doesn't say to rejoice, though, only when things work out. We aren't to find joy in worldly circumstances. Paul says rejoice always. This means it's not based on our circumstances. Things are always changing around us. Things are always moving in the world. People, events, circumstances, they come and go. But that's the good part. When we rejoice, the opposition we're facing doesn't have a hold on us. Our rejoicing is not based on this life. It's not based on a life that's always changing, but on the one that never changes. Rejoice in the Lord. The good things in life don't last. God is the eternal. The bad things you will not have to endure forever. He is the rock. He never moves. And in Him, the psalmist tells us, is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. This command to rejoice is not intended to beat us down when we're low. It's given for our benefit. Paul's reminding the Philippians that when we rejoice, God lifts our spirits and He renews us. Rejoicing in the Lord is drinking from the eternal fountain of God. When we rejoice, we express our thanksgiving, our satisfaction, our love for God that's found in Christ. And God guards our life. He fills us with His presence. He reminds us of His everlasting grace and kindness towards us. The Word always removes any workarounds here. He reminds us that a steadfast love endures forever. Notice there's no exceptions here. That word always puts all that to bed. Here's how one Bible scholar puts it. Written from prison to Christians who are suffering for the commitment to Christ, this command calls for the development of a cheerful attitude in every circumstance to be the dominant theme in the Christian life. The fulfillment of all the other goals in the Christian walk flows out of the practice of rejoicing in the Lord. Do you see the encouragement there, church? Everything else we do comes from rejoicing in the Lord. This is encouragement to us. I need to grow in this, though. Poor Jim Rigger gets easily frustrated. I need reminding that I have joy in Christ. God's given me grace He's given grace to a sinner like me. Nothing I've done warrants such love and mercy from God. Christ dying in my place, taking my sin upon Himself, 
the wrath and judgment aimed at me. And I'm forgiven. Washed anew. I've been given a new heart and a new love. And I have peace with God. Paul says here, I'm part of his family. Elsewhere in the New Testament, I'm a co-heir with Christ. And I have a place at his table. When I think of all this, my problems, my opposition, my frustratedness, everything like that, it's obliterated. It's gone away. It's no more. I have nothing to complain about, nothing to be upset about, and there's nothing in this world that can take that away. Do you see the, re- the encouragement in that? Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. We need to see here that joy in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, is an active joy in the Lord. There's an essential ingredient to it. And it's the phrase, in the Lord. It's not just joy that we can find. It's joy in the Lord. This is not using God to fulfill my emptiness. It's not using God as a means to get what I want. It's not seeing God as someone who saves me, helps me, serves me, is here for me. This is joy in the Lord. It's a relationship with Christ that focuses on Christ. His gifts are not my joy. Christ is my joy. I rejoice in the Lord. Matthew Henry, the Puritan theologian, calls this holy joy and delight in God. The source of our joy is only found in Christ in the Lord. This is a command. We're not able to change it. True everlasting joy is found only in Christ. And it's a command that helps us when we need it most. It's a command that tells us to go to the well and drink, and drink, and drink. Be satisfied in God. Rejoice in the Lord. Be content in His grace. Know your future is secure. Trust His goodness. Your life is His. I am His. And He is mine. So rejoice in the Lord. Paul doubles this command by saying, Again, I will say, rejoice. This is critical to understand. It's foundational to the Christian life. We rejoice even in suffering Because it's the only way to survive. We must take David's word to heart when he says in Psalm 40, verses 2 and 3, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And the result in verse 3, Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord is a defiant stand against brokenness and unbelief. Jesus himself says in John 15, 11, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Our joy is found in Christ. 
because of what Christ has done, what He's doing now on our behalf, and His promise to return to take us to be with Him forever. We rejoice. In this world of uncertainty, of loss and death, we rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord produces an outward approach toward others. That's our third command. It's found in verse 5. To be gentle or reasonable to everyone. Paul writes, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Be gentle or reasonable toward everyone is an outward expression. The mental picture we're to have here is being patient when we're bearing the wrongs given by others. This is, in fact, Christ, is it not? In chapter 2, Paul described Jesus as, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. Christ did not hold on to His rights. He did not hold on to His rights as the sovereign King of the universe, the Creator of His universe. He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled Himself, becoming obedient to death. A rejoicing, a rejoicing spirit is a spirit of humility, a gentle spirit, one that lowers itself so that others are seen as more significant, so that Christ is seen and honored. This is not only held for close family and friends, or only for fellow believers. Paul says our reasonableness is to be known to everyone. We are to have a reputation of putting others first. We are to have the known character of gentleness and reasonableness. We are to be known for being selfless and courteous. We are to respond to opposition with gentleness. Even when we're stripped of our honor and our dignity, when we're treated unjustly, we are to let our reasonableness, our gentleness, to be known to everyone. This is not easy, but look at what follows. The Lord is at hand. The assurance that not only are we to do this, Christ is near. That's our assurance. That's the grounding for this. His nearness causes our rejoicing and produces our gentleness. When you suffer, the Lord is near. His nearness causes our rejoicing and it produces our gentleness. One commentator wrote, Christ is closer than our own breath. And He's returning soon. Think of this and rejoice and be gentle. Paul continues with his fourth command in verses 6 and 7. Please look with me. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The assurance that the Lord is near also encourages believers to not be anxious. We are to stop our obsession with worry. 
How many times have we heard politicians as being out of touch with their constituents? Don't think of Paul in this way. He's just he's not telling the Philippians something that he doesn't know. There's no detachment from danger for Paul. No detachment from opposition or belittlement. This is his daily life. And Paul tells us, stop worrying. Why are we to stop worrying? Because the peace of God that's been given to us will guard our hearts and our minds. Paul first says, do not be anxious about anything. Then he promises that through prayer we will receive the peace of God that surpasses understanding. And it's ours in Christ Jesus. Jesus not only promises his disciples joy, he promises peace. Like joy, peace with God never goes away. Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, those who believe in Jesus have peace with God for all eternity. We're no longer considered enemies of God or enemies of the cross, how Paul puts it. Those whose end is destruction. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Joy and peace are foundational to the Christian life. Again, Jesus says in John chapter 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The peace that Jesus gives lasts forever. So Paul writes, Be anxious about nothing. The command to not be anxious is tied directly with prayer. Notice again, when God tells us to do something, He always enables us to do it. God's not just telling us to stop worrying or to stop being fearful, but He says, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, turn to God for help. There's a constant negative in this command. Do not be anxious about anything. Right after it, there's a constant positive. But in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will guard you in Christ Jesus. So how does prayer stop anxiety? How does it stop worry and fearfulness? Because when we cast all our cares on God, we are declaring our dependence on Him and Him alone. The one who's sovereign, in control of all things. The one who's almighty and unmovable. One who has our best interest in mind. The one who freely gives grace and mercy and peace. And this is something that Paul says goes beyond understanding. This peace surpasses what we can comprehend. Even in tribulation and opposition, we have peace with God. Through prayer, our anxiety goes away and the joy of the Lord will be our strength. Our hearts and minds are guarded in Christ Jesus. Jesus is everything to us. He is our joy, our peace, and our protector. The fifth command from Paul is found in verses 8 and 9. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. While these are good things to apply in our lives, things about the Christian life that are commendable and worth emulating, we are to be virtuous in how we are to live. We are to be virtuous in what we think and how we live does really matter. But I think we miss Paul's point if we don't see Christ in these two verses. This is not just a call to ethical, moral living. While having morals is definitely included in the Christian life, it's not the call of the Christian life. This is a call to turn towards Christ and to put our purpose in Him, to focus on Him. That's why at Redeemer we say Jesus is the focus, the admiration, and the joy of life. Jesus is what's true. Jesus is the only one who's honorable. Jesus is the one who's just. He is pure. He is lovely. He is commendable. He is excellent. Only Jesus is worthy of praise. And if we think on Christ, if we put his life into practice by following him, then the God of peace will be with us. I read earlier in Proverbs that every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Notice the word God is described as a person in that proverb. We know from uh, John's Gospel that the person talked about there is Jesus Christ. The words of God prove true because of who God is. And Jesus is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. In him. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. There is nothing more excellent than Jesus. Jesus is pure and lovely. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 5 21 that for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus conquered sin and rose again in His glory. Jesus is pure and lovely. Again, we turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 6, which says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He meditates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. Jesus is more excellent than the Old Testament promises. He's the fulfillment of the New Testament promises. This makes him the most excellent. Last week I gave 12 glorious reasons why Jesus is worthy of praise. Don't read verses 8 and 9 and miss Jesus. We are to think about these things. We are to practice these things. We are to have joy in Christ, have peace with God because of Jesus. And now here, think about these things about Christ and practice them. Follow Christ. Be imitators of Christ. Paul is writing a letter about joy. He's included unity in the body. Tonight we saw peace with God. But throughout it all, Paul's writing to the Philippians 
of this one and only possibility. It all comes about only because of Christ. Christ is the emphasis here. He is the means and He is the end. He is the joy and He is the peace with God. Think on Christ and practice obedience in Christ. Let's pray.